0: You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania.
1: Hey, it's Chelsea.
2: Hi, it's
3: Grace.
0: Hey, it's Sarah.
3: Hi, and it's Amanda. Today we're going to talk about Terrence Bowers Jr., better known as Terry, was a sandy-blonde 11-year-old boy from Darby, Pennsylvania, with people who don't know Darby Borough. um, It's a town just eight miles from Center City, Philadelphia, with a population of approximately 13,000. He attended Blessed Virgin Mary Catholic grade school, played Little League baseball, and kept a pet snake on the porch in a box. He joined the Boy Scouts Troop 275 and was working $2 a day at his grandmother's gas station to save money to put towards his Boy Scout uniform. Little did he know that the Boy Scouts of America would be paying for his funeral expenses. On April 24th, 1970, Boy Scout Troop 275 from Darby's Blessed Virgin Mary Parish traveled the 30 miles to St. Basil the Great Church on a camping trip.
2: Do you know how they traveled that distance? Was it by bus? Um, Because I looked it up on Google and it doesn't look like they're close enough to like canoe up the Schuylkill or anything like that.
3: I would think that being 30 miles away that they probably bus there. Um, There isn't a lot of detail between that day and the next day, but I would assume that they probably went by bus. Um, The group consisted of, of 21 to 23 boys, all in the ages of 11 to 14, and nine adult leaders or instructors. And what I read about was that most of the leaders were between the ages of 18 and 25, and they joined their senior year in high school and then came back to work on college breaks. Um, I don't have a set number on the boys, and I believe it was only one Boy Scout troop that actually went to that location. So on April 25th, 1970, the boys set up their campsite in an open field on the church grounds about 200 yards from the closest building. Harold Finnegan, the father of a fellow scout, told the Philadelphia News Daily that the 50 acres of land they were camping on was once a pasture, 18 of which were owned by the church and considered, and I quote, the safest place on God's Green Acres. They spent the day playing football, field hockey, and the boys were described that evening as being really bushed, or in other words, exhausted. They had a few tents where several kids slept and Leader's tent where the adults slept. Some of the boys wanted to sleep under the stars, so they gathered their sleeping bags around the campfire. The temperature dropped to about 48 degrees that night, and a few of the boys got cold and went back to their tent for, for some blankets. Terry was last seen at 2 a.m. beside the campfire.
0: So wait, was there an adult that was in charge of these kids that were outside of the tent? I mean, I get if there's a, a group of, you know, the leaders who are in charge of all the boys, but if they're each in their tents, maybe not as big of a deal. But was someone like staying out with them when they were staying out by the campfire that we know of? Not that
3: I can find. Um, I don't think that one specific person was in charge of the group. I think it was more of like a collective effort to keep them wrangled together. Given the age of the um, like leaders, instructors, um, I would think that they probably didn't think that far in advance of like who should be watching what when. But approximately 7.30 the next morning, a fellow scout went to wake Terry only to find him lying face down three-quarters of the way out of his green sleeping bag covered in blood. He was wearing a t-shirt and a polo shirt, but was naked from the waist down. According to the autopsy, Terry was stabbed four times through his sleeping bag, three times in the back and once into the right arm, hitting his chest. It's believed that he was stabbed between 4 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. with a Boy Scout knife or an ordinary knife about three to four inches There was no signs of drugs in Terry's system or any signs of sexual abuse. However, the police didn't want to 100% roll it out.
0: Okay, so it just seems really sketchy that there's nothing on below the waist and without there being signs of abuse. And this, I mean, maybe this is like trigger warning or just I'm dumb for not knowing this, but how do you check for that? I mean, does it have to be like physical bruising or physical contusions or something like that, that they can really prove one way or the other? I I don't know. It just seems weird. Like unless they found his shorts and think he just like shimmied out of them as he was sleeping, like flopping around or something. But I don't know. That seems odd to me.
3: I don't think that they—I think they were talking more as far as, like, trauma. I don't know if, like, in the 1970s, given that it was the 70s, that they actually, like, swabbed for, like, saliva in these private areas. Um, So at that, I'm not 100% sure.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And then—so you also said that he was stabbed four times. Was he sleeping on his stomach that he was—I know you said three were in the back, one was in his arm and kind of into his side— was he like laying on his stomach? How do you just get s- stabbed in the back in your sleep? If I mean, I guess he would just be on his stomach.
3: Yeah, I, it doesn't really say whether he was laying on his stomach first and then and stabbed first in the back or in the front. Um, if he got stabbed in the, f- in the back first, then maybe he rolled over to defend himself with his arm. I can't imagine that he was stabbed in the front first and then rolled over, but he was found face down, so maybe that is
1: how it happened. Well, I have a question. If he got stabbed and he's outside of where these other boys are sleeping in their tents, I would feel like there'd be some noise. Um, is it a possibility that he was killed elsewhere and then brought back?
3: It's definitely a possibility. Um, there was that theory um, by a couple of people that I read on um, like Reddit and Web Sleuth, but I feel that it would be harder for them to kill him off site. And then why would you? bring him back risking being seen. I mean, at 4.30, like 4, 6.30 in the morning, I believe the, sun r- the sunrise, according to historic data, was like six o'clock in the morning, and it was partly cloudy, so it would be pretty light out if it was closer to like the morning
1: time. But then you would think that if it's like, it, that is early, but that's kind of around when people are waking up, especially if you're outside, the light's bright you definitely think you would kind of hear noises. You want to be so deep into a sleep. I, don't, I just think it's strange.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I know that there's a major artery called the auxiliary artery that runs in your armpit and supplies blood to your extremities. Um, and it's also close to the heart. So if he was stabbed in that area, he could have bled out within a few minutes. Um, and I also read that most, the most lethal seven places to strike someone with a knife is the back of the neck, into the spinal cord, the throat, the armpit in that exact artery, and the heart and lungs, and then it goes on and on. Some newspaper articles reported that Terry was still alive and taken to the hospital, where he was later pronounced dead, but most articles say that he did die on scene. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the investigation was hexed from the beginning, stating that by the time State Police Sergeant James Wenner arrived, the body had been moved and the parents were already on scene. He also indicated that it was a hell of a situation given that, quote, damn near every Boy Scout got a knife. Police confiscated over 20 knives and one ice pick and sent them to a forensic lab to examine for blood residue. Now, again, it's like the 1970s, so I'm not 100% sure what type of testing they could do or if they could just determine, like, hey, there's human DNA on this versus animal DNA.
0: Do you know if they found anything on any of the weapons did they ever disclose
3: no any they, of that? they didn't they also were very like hush hush about where the injuries were um so all of the injuries reported were from um somebody that close to the family that had given that information they never actually like released what the information was Following Terry's murder, all the Boy Scouts and leaders were polygraphed and interrogated. However, all their stories checked out. The scout leaders said that the boys worked and played well together, and they didn't feel that any of them could have done something like this. The only lead that they did have was a passing motorist seeing a vehicle by the campsite in the morning about 630 in the morning. They described two white males in their early 20s within 100 feet of the campsite. It was reported they saw a dark colored car parked on Route 113 around dawn, but no leads became of it. In the weeks following the murder, hundreds of people in Northern Chester County and in Darby Borough were interviewed, and it was reported that in the first year of the investigation, 26 state troopers have logged over 6,200 man hours into the case in hopes of finding a lead in Terry Bauer's killer. The state police even went as far as checking for patients that may have been AWOL or out on a day pass from Penhurst State Hospital or the Valley Forge Military Hospital. And for those of you that aren't familiar, Pennhurst um, is now a Halloween attraction, but in that time it housed like 27, 2800 people that had severe disabilities, either mental or physical. Um, It also housed orphans, immigrants, criminals, and they used to keep children in metal cages and often lying in their own feces for days. Uh, Eventually it was shut down in 1987 after years of chronic overcrowding and patient abuse was reported. Um, And I couldn't find much information on patients escaping because it's now all about Halloween. But I would assume that it's definitely plausible that someone got out. People escape from jail all the time. So I would think that that's something that could happen. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, crime scene investigators and the local fire department drained the pond outside of St. Basil the Great Church and about 30 miles away from Chester County. They swept the church's triangle-shaped property with metal detectors again and again, searching for a murder weapon. Over 100 Boy Scouts joined in the search for any evidence that would help the investigation, but they were unsuccessful. I do find it a little weird that they had Boy Scouts assist in searching for evidence. I don't know. What do you guys think about that?
0: I feel like as soon as you say Boy Scouts, the scandals come to mind. So, I mean... And I'm sure that you're going here with theories when we talk a little bit later, but it just strikes me as it wasn't friends and family. It wasn't community members. I mean, they were on the grounds of this church. It wasn't even church members, which Catholic Church is a different scandal altogether. But it does kind of seem convenient that it was only Boy Scouts that were doing this search
2: and I, I mean, I know it, they're, sorry, I know they're Boy Scouts, but, like, they're still kids. So how thorough was their search,
1: really? How do they know exactly what to be looking for or what to overlook? I mean, there's just so yeah. much.
3: And also their suspects. I mean, that he was killed so next to them. So I, I don't completely understand that. Um, I know that they did check into a former police chief um, that lived in Philadelphia at the time that was a registered sex offender. Um, And he mysteriously showed up at the autopsy, but it was proven that he was there to meet with a doctor, and so they threw that out. In July of 1970, the Boy Scouts of America posted a $5,000 reward for any information leading to suspects. However, the reward only brought about 30 tips, and it didn't really produce any leads. They had a few suspects throughout the years. In 72, they had a 25-year-old employee of an adult bookstore in Philly. That was questioned after newspaper clippings were found in his house of the whole murder Uh, no physical links were established and no arrests were made then in 1977 at camp scott in mays county oklahoma three girl scouts were found raped and murdered lori doris and michelle were sharing a tent at girl scout camp the night before a thunderstorm had hit the area and the three girls huddled in their tent to ride out the storm In the morning at 6 a.m., a camp counselor discovered the three bodies about 150 yards away from their tent on a trail leading to the showers. All three girls were raped, bludgeoned, and strangled. A flashlight was found on top of one of the girls' bodies, and fingerprints were lifted from the lens, but was never identified. A size 9.5 bloody footprint was found outside the tent, and it was reported that the landowner heard quite a bit of traffic on the remote road near the campground at 3 a.m. Gene Leroy Hart had been on the run since 1973 after escaping from jail. He was convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women and has also four counts of first-degree burglary. He was raised about a mile from Camp Scott and he was arrested in connection to the three Girl Scouts and tried in March of 1979. Ultimately, the jury acquitted him and sent him to Oklahoma State Penitentiary to serve the remainder of his 305-year sentence for his prior convictions. Many believe that Gene Hart had something to do with Terry Bower's murder, given the M.O. in the campground, a young kid stabbed naked from the waist down. However, police were never able to link him to Pennsylvania, so he never really became a viable suspect.
0: So totally unplanned just in what my podcasts brought up on my phone today. I listened to an episode of uh, Murder Squad with Billy Johnson and Paul Holes where they had Elena and Ash on from Morbid, and they were talking about this case. And of course, since I knew we were recording tonight, I was like, oh, I got to listen in. Um, They were talking about the Oklahoma Girl Scout killings. Something that they mentioned about Gene Leroy Hart, um, who— was eventually acquitted. But he also had the the other, um, with the pregnant women, those charges. And in the flashlight at the Girl Scout camp, there was a piece of rolled up newspaper, and it was the same newspaper that was at the scene with the two pregnant women. Another thing was that those three girls were removed from the tent, and they were taken to, I mean, it wasn't very far, like you said, but they were found like along a access road, I guess. My thought is, if we're going to follow the theory that it's him, was there any sort of newspaper, anything left behind? I know it's a far stretch, but it's kind of what connected his other cases together. And maybe do we think that Terry was left where he was, started to get dragged out, and then maybe someone started waking up, so they look a little bit different, but... Potentially, really, there could be a link between these cases.
3: I mean, he was on the run since 73. Um, and this happened in 1970. And then there was that big lapse until the Oklahoma killings in 77. So I don't know if they accounted for every time that he like where he was in that time. Because I don't obviously they didn't know where he was because he was on the run. Right.
0: Um, but do we know when he was arrested the first time? If he escaped from jail in 73, was he even out of jail in 70 when this happened? Probably Or was not. he incarcerated?
3: I'm not 100% sure. I would have to look it up. I, I honestly don't know.
0: I'm going to go to my friend Google as we continue <laughs> and I'll update.
2: <laughs> I have right. a question and not even totally about this specific theory, but you did mention the size of his footprint at the Girl Scout murders. Did we find any footprints at this crime scene? I mean, it was a campground. They didn't find any of that evidence?
3: No, they were really, really hush about it. They didn't release a lot of details to the public. And my only assumption from that is that when they got the person, like an actual viable suspect, that they could test their knowledge and see if they actually knew details that maybe only the killer would know. Um, That kind of happened with Timothy Finnegan. Um, In July of uh, 81, he was imprisoned for being a drug dealer. He told police that he lived with a man that admitted to killing Terry and that he even saw him burning bloody clothing the morning after Terry was killed. However, he couldn't give any details about the case. So um, there were no arrests to me.
0: Okay, I'm coming back from Google. And in my quick search, I could not find his arrest date or conviction date for his initial sentencing. Speaking of the last, the Oklahoma Girl Scout killings suspect there. So following up on that. Now, so Timothy Finnegan just burned bloody clothing, his own clothing, or are they saying it was...
3: He's saying it was a man that lived with him that was burning bloody clothing. They didn't say if it was his or if it was maybe the pants or shorts that Terry had on because I don't know if he had clothes found in his sleeping bag or not. There's no reports on exactly what they found. I know December 1991, the Enquirer reported that a second man stepped forward and implicated the guilt for the same man that Timothy had said. And Terry's mom starts to have suspicions that he was murdered by a pedophile who maybe accidentally killed him looking for a boy that had been molested who had backed out of camping on the trip unexpectedly.
0: Do we know anything more about that child? I mean, I'd, obviously, he's an adult now, but I and I don't want to put him on blast or anything like that. Do we know, is it someone that looked like Terry? Was it just maybe opportune this pedophile knew that this other boy was a part of this troop and there happened to be a boy sitting by the campfire?
3: No, they don't really go into details. And again, my assumption is because they're all minors that they aren't really giving a lot of information about it i only saw that theory in one posting so i don't know how credible it is i don't know how if they looked alike i really don't know any more information about that just that they suspected it and that there was two people that implicated this person but they don't even tell you who this person really is they did talk about a former boy scout that was convicted of rape uh, Lawrence Wakeley served time in state prison for confessing to killing Terry in retaliation for being kicked out of a former Boy Scout and convicted rapist Lawrence Wakeley, who served time in state prison once confessed to killing Terry in retaliation for being kicked out of the Boy Scouts. According to documents he was a scout in Spring City Chester County from 58 to 60 which is about four miles from where Terry was murdered. Lawrence was even convicted of raping two teenagers, girls in 71. According to the state police investigator at the time, Lawrence had mental issues and did not know pertinent details about the case that only the killer would have known. So he was dismissed as a suspect. I found a couple of theories. Some of them are pretty far-fetched. One of them goes to you saying that how was he stabbed and didn't make any noise, like no one heard him. According to the Vintage News, they reported on an article titled, Christopher Lee had a correct Peter Jackson on how people react when knifed. There's an excerpt from the article that says, at one point during the filming of Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, the second installment of the Acclaimed Trilogy. I am not a Lord of the Rings person, so I'm going to let Sarah do this because I'm going to butcher these
0: names. I'm also not a Lord of the Rings person, so I may still get these wrong. But according to Google, um, in The Two Towers, the crew filmed the scene in which Saruman gets stabbed in the back by Grima Wormtongue. Um, Although
3: the scene didn't end up in the release to the public, it was seen in the extended edition of the trilogy. During the filming of the scene, Jackson wanted Lee to scream after being stabbed in the back. However, Lee refused to scream He told the director that he witnessed many men getting stabbed in the back and none of them have ever screamed. According to the late actor, they merely sighed as air escaped their lungs. Peter Jackson listened to his feedback and the scene scene was filmed without any screaming.
0: Are we just going to look over the fact that he's seen multiple people get stabbed in the back (laughs) as if that's like a normal thing? True. True. I don't know where you grow up. (laughs) No, no, no. That's not how this works. Like, okay. All right. So I guess basically the thought here is just that, like we talked about a little bit earlier, it would potentially be possible for someone to have stabbed Terry in the back and there not have been any noise.
2: So I get that they're, I feel like they're trying to say that the natural reaction is not screaming. But just from this out of context little piece, it seems like it might be more of like a macho thing to keep quiet just because he said like I've never heard a man scream while being stabbed so maybe it was like an honor thing like I refuse to scream but I don't know that's just my take on it
1: but then I can only imagine I mean when you're getting stabbed I mean it's not something you're doing fairly willingly I feel like there's got to be some pushback Or maybe a scuffle, or maybe moving around. There has to be some type of noise. It can't be that easy. I have no idea, but I'm just saying. Fair,
3: yeah. I tried to look up like how hard it is to stab somebody in the back, and of course, using that
2: now, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: Of course, they're using it as like the analogy of like stabbing someone in the back. Um, So maybe he's talking about that, like you stab someone, like he's been stabbed in the back, and he just doesn't say anything. He just lets it go. I'm not 100% sure. I know that you could have like a traumatic pneumothorax or like a sucking chest wound, um, and it's kind of when something penetrates the wall of your of your chest, um, like a knife or a bullet. Um, and it allows air or blood to fill in that pleural space or like the sac around your lungs. And when you inhale, you're basically sucking air and blood into that space and it compresses the lungs until it collapses. And then once it collapses, it'll start to pressure the heart until the heart stops. So it could be that's why he didn't scream because he, depending on
0: where the wounds were, he maybe couldn't scream. Kudos on nailing those medical terms. <laughs> that's not being able to say worm tongue.
3: Um, sorry. Go on. <laughs> no, sorry. um, so Sarah, you should have some insight in this. The Zodiac killer was another theory. Um, I found a posting on Reddit that there's a theory involving the notorious Zodiac killer. And for those not familiar, he's still an unidentified serial killer that claimed to have killed over 37 people between the 1960s and seventies, mostly in California. And then he would brag about it in cryptic letters and cards that he mailed to the San Francisco Bay Area uh, press. The theory is based that the Halloween card sent to the news reporter, Paul Avery, on October 27th, 1970, was only six months and one day after Terry's murder. Within the coded card, there is believed to be a location described as SEPA Paradise. I attached a copy of the card for you guys to view because it's a little far-fetched for me and there's a lot of details surrounding it. The short version is The directions lead to the exact location of the church where Terry Bowers was found murdered. The website goes on to show that the artwork of the card matches the artwork on the church. It's a well-thought-out theory, but I don't think that the Zodiac Killer killed outside of California. Sarah, you might have better input on this, but it seems kind of far-fetched for me.
0: Yeah, so going just with my gut, because, of course, with forensic linguistics and linguistics in general— um, I'm slightly obsessed with the zodiac killer but there's no evidence that he ever left the California area um especially not let's go from southwestern states to northeastern states it just seems a little odd when I was working on my forensic linguistics capstone I did work a little bit with the zodiac um not like with the zodiac but I looked into his writings. You're
3: also on
2: and a watch the thing, list.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you know. So uh, the thing with the Zodiac and all the ciphers is that there's a thousand ways to interpret them without having them fully decoded. And there, at this point, there are only two that are fully decoded. One of them was in the fall, I think. I want to say like October, November. They just decoded another one. But it took, you know, 30 years to decode One, you can read a lot of different things into the ciphers because they're so vague. Sorry, not sorry, kind of like horoscopes. Um, I think it's a stretch to link three time zones apart with no other related Zodiac cases in PA. So
3: And nothing in between.
0: Right. And it doesn't really match his MO, right? Like a, a boy at a campground at Boy Scout camp doesn't line up with most of the other cases that are attributed to him. Right.
3: I think the other theory that we can throw out is that he was attacked by wild animals. I don't think that bears and coyotes and whatever else might be out there carry knives.
2: Okay, um, raccoons <laughs> are violent creatures. They like <laughs> shiny things. I mean, <laughs> raccoon with a pocket knife, I feel like viable. We can keep that on and the They list. like
0: to stab you repeatedly in the back with pocket knives. Right, they're mean. It was a raccoon. Case solved.
2: Yep. Case I solved. did it. <laughs> we we so solved a one case. Of the, <laughs> <laughs>
3: one of the bigger theories has to do with the Catholic Church. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that Chris Bowers, the brother of Terry, immediately thought of his brother's death when he thought of the Philadelphia Archdiocese. Could it have been a priest? If they wanted to find out where a bunch of young boys were hanging out, they were privy to that information. Um, These are some of the biggest organizations in the world, referring to the Roman Catholic Church and the Boy Scouts. If they wanted to shut this thing up, they would be able to. Um, And he thinks that they did. But if it happened today, he feels that the police would be able to make the connections. Family has raised concerns given the recent pedophile scandals in the news.
2: Yeah, this is the one that jumped out at me, just knowing how much the Catholic Church hid in the past and how this widespread plague of um, priests molesting children was, I mean, it was covered for so many years, deeply. So that's just why this stands out to me. Well, and you think
0: about like, the punishment for getting caught doing something was you just got sent to a new location. Like, oh, what a punishment. Now there's people that you haven't totally groomed that you get to start this process over with. I mean, as a pastor's kid, I don't ever like to be the one that's like, things happen in churches. But, you know, kind of like you said, Grace, when you look at this time frame, and obviously my dad is not a uh, priest because then I wouldn't exist, so not in the Catholic church, but it was a big thing, for lack of a better term. I mean, it— They were well known in that regard, at least eventually, that you didn't want to be around certain Catholic priests or, I mean, even eventually, kind of like I mentioned earlier, the Boy Scouts of America started to get a tarnished name. So, I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting. I don't want to speculate anything, but I think it's definitely interesting that we have these two organizations kind of tied together.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: I definitely,
3: I mean, I kind of dove in a little bit and looked to see what the average is, what the average age and like, um, are they boys or girls? Who do they usually target? And I found that it's usually between the ages of 11 and 14 and it's typically boys, but there's also been some girls and they've been as young as three years old. And then i went into looking at the database because you can actually break it down by like regions so in philadelphia alone there was 157 priests like the philadelphia area and a lot of them when i read the data on them transferred in maybe a 10-year period to 15 to 20 different locations so it's like they kept happening and they just kept moving them to different places.
2: So sorry um, just quick question these um, <laughs> that number is just priests in general or priests that have some sort of history.
3: They are in the database for being accused, convicted or acquitted of sexual abuse. Okay 157. Wow, just in the Philly area. It's kind of disgusting. So three of them really caught my attention because of course I had to dive down that hole to see what I could find. Um, I'm not gonna mention names. I did nickname them. Uh, the cabin creeper is a priest that was accused of sexually assaulting at least six boys by nineteen sixty-four, all of which complained that he snuck into their cabins at night while they were camping and molested them. So when looking at it, it fits going to a campground and he was only twenty three miles away from the campground that Terry was at.
0: Yeah, that's a little suspicious.
3: Very. Um, Unfortunately, he died in 2017, so I don't know if we'll ever get an answer from him. Uh, The second one that caught my attention, I dubbed the Philly Fondler. He was originally at a church in King of Prussia that was less than 10 miles away, and then he transferred to a Blessed Virgin Mary church in Philadelphia. I'm not very familiar with the Catholic church. I don't know If it's um, like a corporation and all the Blessed Virgin Marys are like all the Applebee's in the world, I don't know if they're related. And I don't know how it works of like if certain churches go and help other churches. So I don't know. But he was within 10 miles and he was the second closest that I found.
0: So churches will definitely help each other in that like there might be one priest that will cover for another priest. All of the names in Catholic churches are supposed to be representative of what that church believes in specifically or what they, at least when they first build the church, um, hold as some of the more important ideals. That's why you see a lot of Blessed Virgin Mary or like St. Peter and St. Paul. And you see a lot of those same names because those are all really important and influential people within the Christian faith. So it's possible. I mean, like I said, I'm not Catholic. I'm not in that circle to know, oh, yeah, there are two of basically the same church that kind of share congregations or priests or whatever. Um, I know that happens in other denominations, that they'll share a pastor, um, so maybe, but I also know that to see a Catholic church called Blessed Virgin Mary is not rare at all. It's very, very common.
3: And the last one that I caught, I think is, of all of them, the one that really caught my attention, Um, we're calling him the pecker toucher. He was one of the 21 priests placed on administrative leave by the Philadelphia Archdiocese in March of 2011, pending investigation of credible allegations involving sexual abuse or inappropriate behavior with minors. This priest in particular was a chaplain for the Boy Scouts of America in 1969, and he was at the Blessed Virgin Mary Church in Philadelphia. All claims against him were unsubstantiated, and he was found suitable for ministry in 2012, and as of today, I believe he is still in the church.
2: Weren't they all basically within the church found unsubstantiated claims and suitable for ministry, especially in that time? I mean, that doesn't mean anything to me, honestly.
3: There were a lot that went
2: on like a leave
3: that I saw and then were brought back. Um, There are some that were accused and never went to trial because they maybe passed away before. There were a few convicted. I don't know if the ones convicted actually even served time. I don't... Right. um, I didn't really... I kind of looked at when they were... um, When they started and then based it off of would they have been around in that time frame. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So this
3: one is super interesting. I don't believe I've read of any of them actually assaulting or like hurting or killing. Maybe you guys have. The only one that I found was that... There was one in the Philly area that also beat his rape victims, but I don't know if there was any in the country that had actually murdered or caused other physical harm, as if
2: sexual assault's not enough. Right. And that, of course, that we know of. Have to tack that on. At the end. Yeah. The only
0: thing I can think of is that case with um, that they covered with the keepers. Um, But that was also a teacher at the school that ended up going missing. It wasn't a child. And again, that whole thing is speculation. But that's the only thing I can think of where there was a priest who was accused of assault in one way, shape, or form of minors because minors within the school were reporting the assault and then a teacher went missing. Um, I mean, it's it's total speculation, but that's the only case I can think of that has a like murder or physical violence aspect.
3: There was about 30 of the people that I actually looked at that worked at one single school. However, it wasn't near where Terry was. Um, I just feel really bad for the kids. And yeah, my seriously. I have 30 in a row like that.
0: Didn't he go to a Catholic school?
3: He did in Upper Derby. Um,
0: but I didn't. were any names from the list on that Not you that know what I, I mean.
3: Not that I saw. And like I said, I went through anyone who was, um, I believe it was ordained by 19 like before 1970 and then I went down through to see if there was anything listed. there because they're showing like where they worked um and where they were transferred to and like we said before it was there were some that were transferred around just they just went from church to church to church like they didn't want them it was it's heartbreaking for these kids so that's kind of it there aren't really any other theories out there i feel like the catholic church one unfortunately kind of sits pretty high on my list of theories unless the raccoon did it
0: that's my number one. <laughs> I'm going with the raccoon. Clearly the most plausible.
2: Maybe it was the Catholic uh, raccoon. Sorry, I'm done.
3: <laughs> <The Catholic raccoon. laughs> um, so some of the things that really stuck out to me was the time of day that it was light. It could have been light outside when this happened or it should start to be getting light out at that time um, and that no one heard it and that he had no pants on. I know I saw an episode of Cold Justice, which you'll find out I'm completely obsessed with. And there was a, a woman trying to get away from a killer and she, they, the killer grabbed the back of her pants and she kind of like crawled out of them. So I don't know if that's the situation and they don't even say if the pants were in the sleeping bag. So I don't really have a theory on that other than maybe he crawled out of them.
2: That is so much movement to not hear, though, like how Chelsea had mentioned earlier. I mean, even if he didn't scream while being stabbed, that's so much that's a ruckus. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Especially at a time when people would be waking up and you'd think that the you'd think the leaders would be waking up around that time, especially because they have to start getting the boys up. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. The timing is weird. Mm-hmm.
3: There was some person that said, like, with them being in the 70s and these all the leaders being, you know, young kids, basically in college, that maybe the people in the parking lot were friends that came over to kind of party and something got out of hand. Well, I I don't
1: I have a question. So I know, I mean, this was a while ago, but were there any background checks? Were there any did any of the counselors have any type of criminal history? Um, before or after i mean they're kids but they can still commit crimes
3: yeah no not that i could find i didn't see anything um it's not like today where you need to have you know your fbi fingerprinting and all of these clearances to even go to a school or go to a sporting event i doubt that they did that in the 70s i mean i know when i first became an emt in 2005 that i didn't have to have clearances until a certain time um it just wasn't really
0: I mean, I know growing up in the Girl Scouts, our troop leaders and stuff didn't have to have clearances or, you know, like you said, the fingerprints and all that kind of stuff. It was just, hey, I'm willing to take this on. And they would say, okay, here's your troop number.
2: That's wild to think about So I highly doubt in the 70s.
0: Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Because
2: parents are like, I, if you're going to be around my child, I want to know any, uh, traffic tickets you've ever gotten i want to know your blood type like <laughs> nowadays, i totally
1: understand nowadays it's so hard like they can't it's all really searchable find yeah
3: yeah yeah it's all searchable and everything is caught on camera so that's why it's shocking like in the case of you know the other cases that we're going to talk about that there is an information on that so terry's sister maureen who was 12 when terry was killed told the daily news in 2012 How did this happen? How did a boy get stabbed to death on the grounds of a Catholic church on a Boy Scout trip and nobody hears it? The poor little guy came home in a body bag. To this day, all leads seem to be dead ends, leading to the family more and more hopeless. Terry's family reported they feel confident that someone in Troop 275 knows something and urges anyone with information about Terry's death to call the Pennsylvania State Police at 610-486-6280, or the Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers at 1-800-4-PA-TIPS. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips about a case. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Amanda. You can find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music by Darren Makins. Production assistance by a to b Media. Please join us next week for another case to sleuth out.